What's up, freaks and geeks? Welcome back to another episode of Region Free. See what I did there? Freaks and geeks, that's so good. Yeah. That's so good. That's both a callback and also a little bit of like a an evolution mm-hmm. of our old podcast. That's great. I yeah, love that. I shit. don't know I don't know what you're talking about there. This is the only podcast we've ever done, and it's episode one officially. The first time we're doing an episode one, and maybe the last. That's true. Uh, we've got a, an absolute. What did you get a job? Did, did your <laughs> job interview go that well that, that you got so a job? Funny. Look, uh, yeah, I um, I applied for a sort of a, a position on a remote uh, mystical island. It was like, uh, don't ask too many questions. There are a lot of NDAs right. and confidential proprietary information that we're not able to give you mm-hmm. at this time. Um, but we promise that we've kind of got a hustle focused startup culture, and I think <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity for you to explore here. Wow, interesting. Congratulations on your hustle focused future career. Yeah, it was like soft skills not necessary. A lot of this is going to be learning on the job, getting you up to speed with um the very interesting and particular opportunity that we've got. I like to think all my skills are hard. Skills. I like to think so too. Your your skills on the guitar certainly are because I've heard That's some right. of those heavy riffs. Um That's right. Folks Today we're talking about Horrors of Malformed Men, one of the Genesis movies for this podcast, one of the ones that we were Is like... Is that right? Yeah. That I, true? I bought this Blu-ray, like, I bought the Beautiful Arrow uh, yeah. Collector's Edition, Limited Edition Blu-ray with the Tom Mess, Mark Sharpling commentaries, um, and I bought it like 18 months ago because we were like, you put me onto this one, mm. you were like, this movie's kind of wild, I think you're going to really dig it, Um and I was like, okay, I'm going to watch that. We're going to talk about that on our podcast that we're going to do mm-hmm. eventually. Here we are doing the podcast. I finally watched okay. the movie, and guess what? Pretty wild. It's kind of wild. I yeah, dug it's it. a wild yeah. movie. You know what, actually? It's like half wild. The first half is like a pretty boring pulp mystery, and then the back half, it's like, what, were you nodding off? Because I'm about to assault your senses <laughs> with sight and sound. I don't, I don't want to dive right into it, because there's a lot of interesting stuff to set up top. That mm-hmm. was... The sales pitch for this movie is like the ending kind of even back half especially is like goes a little nuts goes balls to the yep. wall mm-hmm. i don't think i can fully say this confidently and with gusto but like stewing on it thinking about it i really liked the first half of this movie i thought it was very like funny slapstick yeah. sort of comedy my favorite scene in the movie has nothing to do with any malformed men or body horror or really cool pyrotechnics or very is- neat like is colors, it them two monks. Is it them two monks. It's not the two monks. That's oh, okay. maybe that's maybe a runner up. Um, we'll get to it when we get to it. But let's rewind. Let's take a big wheel as I'm gesturing and and roll it back a little bit. Um, this okay. film is directed by. I want to make sure I pronounce it right. Uh, Teruishi, a guy who I am not super familiar with. Um, Let I me definitely... ask you a question. AJ. Yes, sir. How familiar are you with pink films? Not very. The, the like essentially like softcore porn. I'm aware of what that meant basically. <laughs> okay. he, so uh, I, he made a lot of those, which might answer a lot of questions about the directorial style of this film. Yeah, look, there's a lot of nudity on top of everything mm-hmm. else in this movie. It's just one of those things where you can definitely tell that uh, there were maybe some studio notes or sort of part of the reason they got to make this movie was like, look. You have to put uh, unclothed female human breasts on screen. At least I wasn't, I got to be honest, I was not keeping track with a calculator or a stopwatch. 
a not significant, not insignificant portion of this film has some. Yeah, uh, I think Sam Barlow got that same production note on, from an Immortality. <laughs> um, no, you know what? I think that would probably track. This is a bit off topic, but I find it pretty fascinating. I at some point, and I think it was when they were doing the like Nikatsu Roman porno pink films, they would effectively production companies didn't really care what the movies were. So they would hire these directors and be like, you can literally make anything so long as it has a sex scene in it. And so you would get dudes like Hisayasu Sato and even Kiyoshi Kurosawa actually got his start in pink films. But I don't know if he was directly involved with this stuff. Um, they would make these like balls to the wall pink, like pinku soft, po- softcore porn films that would be like really, really like fascinating and well made. And also they it would have like two sex scenes. That were just, like, sort of explicit. I don't think that was what was going on here. But also, like, this dude was making some wild shit back in the day. Which Arrow has released a lot of it at this point. Like, um, Orgies of Edo. Yeah. uh, Shogun of of Torture. Stuff like that. A lot of his early uh, works remain pretty inaccessible. Um, One of the special features on the Blu-ray that I watched was, like... um, a festival sort of introduction he had done. Like, a retrospective screening. And they talked a lot about the uh abashiri prison film series which is like was this 16 part sort of pulp uh detective thing that he did not direct all of them but it was like kind of had a moment um and that film or at least most of them seem pretty hard to track down at this point some some other films this guy has made have titles like screwed the aforementioned orgies of Edo, uh inferno of torture joy yeah. of torture so yeah this is the guy we're dealing with uh, you he know. also did he also did blind woman's curse with uh Meiko kaji lady snowblood herself yeah that one so has a sick out. poster at least on yeah. the box very cool but uh you know when you walk into one of these films you can imagine you're probably going to get a little pulp exploitation sort of grind house adjacent stuff Uh, one of the things that really surprised me about this movie both maybe it's just the restoration and the presentation um it's gorgeous uh, for a film that came out beautiful uh in 1969 like it has an incredible artistic direction some really neat stylistic choices like the costumes all of the set dressing the production design is just like it's it's a great film to look at uh, maybe less so or more so than think about, digest, discern. Uh, the word inscrutable was used in this conversation at some point. Uh, a well, difficult film to scroot and sort through. It is. I Well, I love to scroot. That's the thing you got to know about me. Let me attempt. Mr. Um, scroot Driver. It is an adaptation of an Edogawa Rampo story who's like, I, I don't know. I don't want to overspeak Japan's arthur conan doyle almost you know like that caliber of like mystery writer well a a fun bit of trivia is that his name is sort of a self-conscious spin on edgar Allan poe that's where his 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 pseudonym his authorial name that he published under was one of his direct inspirations arthur conan doyle not far off but he was definitely inspired by those guys who were like running down to the letterpress and being like i got some hot new shit the streets are gonna want to hear this one that makes a lot more sense that he's like big into like Edgar Allan Poe. Maybe that exposes me for not the, for not for being not the most learned of us, you know, most literary of <laughs> us. But that does make a lot of sense. Your, your shelves uh, are all full of Gundam. No room for books. <laughs> that's right. I'm gonna well, keep actually, <laughs> there are a few Edogawa Rampo stories. Over oh, there really? Okay, because, so you're familiar. 
because Junji Ito has adapted a few of them. And in fact, one of the stories Junji Ito adapted is kind of like in this one very briefly, which is a story about um, a chair that has a compartment in it that a person can hide in. That is like briefly alluded to in this within a like wider Rampo story. One of, you know, there's a lot of wild stuff on the screen in this movie. One of the funniest bits, let's call it, is the reveal of the chair, what contains a man who uh, can fondle people who sit on the chair. Yeah. Also, a really funny little detail. We'll get to the character Goro Akechi here in a moment massive uh character in japan so much so that persona 5 literally just took him his name and dropped it in there it was like yeah this is our detective character Goro Akechi. Yeah. so you know that's something i learned from the special features as well but the exact actor who plays that character in this movie has played the character previously before so this is there's i don't know a soft franchise sort of thing going on mm. that's pretty cool tell me about this movie AJ. well i i feel like i watched it under sub suboptimal conditions last night oh no let me let me set the scene for you i went to hilo diner in uh longfellow minneapolis don't dox yourself with my i don't live in longfellow real-time assassination coordinates i don't i'm not there currently i went there last night with alex van aken and i ate about three of my body weights worth in bread oh just bread then i thought you were well it was biscuits and no biscuits and gravy french fries and then a giant mountain of donut and then i came home and had to watch this movie after that (laughs) and i'd seen the movie before so my brain was already not fully engaged but gotta say a lot of it washed over me so i'm gonna need you to take the reins here on the synopsis bad biscuits and gravy will will get to you one time uh, it was a great biscuits and gravy. okay good but i mean like they'll fuck your stomach up a lot yeah 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 the first time I ever had biscuits and gravy, this is a very short story, uh, went to church like an hour later because I was a good Catholic boy. My mm-hmm. stomach was like not even twisting itself in knots, doing fucking precise surgery on itself. And I thought wow. that uh, God was punishing me for, I don't know, being a bad boy. No, and here's the thing about so Hilo I, Diners. I stray from biscuits and gravy these days. Here's the thing about Hilo Diners biscuits and gravy. You think you're going to get like two little biscuits with some gravy on top and then you have your like sausage and egg on the side but no 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 all of these are on top of each other so you just get this mass of gray which Mm. after cutting in you learn is like a biscuit the size of wyoming with about an olympic swimming pool's (laughs) amount of gravy on top and then the egg is on top of all of that so you're eating like basically what would be four disparate parts of a meal at any other restaurant all in every single bite and there's no way you go home and can watch horrors of malformed men and not start to doze off for about 90 minutes okay watch this check this out this is why i'm a professional um if the biscuit of this film is the works of rampo the gravy okay. is also the works of rampo because this is sort of based on one specific uh short story the strange tale of panorama island i believe but as you sort of uh. hinted at earlier there are lots of characters instances little fun bits that they just sort of plucked wholesale from other stories and dropped into the you know the gravy that they sprinkle on top of the bones of that structure because it was it's the ERCU the Edogawa Rampo Cinematic, <laughs> Cinematic Universe. Universe that's right yeah, yeah. Well, the, well the post credit scene where Samuel L. Jackson shows up was really great here about 40 years before he played the the character he 
wearing the eye patch and everything. It was pretty cool. And probably about ten years before he's born. No, that might not be true. No, that, that man's like sixty-nine, seventy, or eighty. Yeah, he's okay, alive. Yeah. He's kicking. Well, I wonder if he saw this in theaters. Probably not because uh, this was hard to see in America for a number of reasons, most of which being uh, it's kind of a perverted, freaky little Japanese horror movie, and those were not, believe it or not, the most widely seen. But they were sort of a, a, a key cultural export of this era, as you sort of alluded to earlier with the pink films backstory and mm-hmm. setup. That's kind of how these things were getting made and why they were being circulated. So, you know, you could go to the Times Square movie theater at midnight, uh, a la Taxi Driver, sit your little butt down and just watch some horrors of malformed men, which kind of feels Is that like... true? Yeah, this, like, these, um, these sorts of movies I was reading that, like, you know, Ishii especially, kind of his early stuff whatever you want to call it was seen as a fascination and was like you know they weren't exporting the big art films uh as much uh-huh. as they were kind of just throwing these grindier exploitation style so, films out not like you know I had, they weren't playing right. in multiplexes everywhere but it was sort right. of a fascination I, I had always thought like you know america had very much like a golden era of porn when like the x rating was sort of like legitimized and you started getting like uh, Caligula is a very famous example these days, or even like Deep Throat to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. But like, I know I never I I never really knew there was kind of a crossover between like what was coming out of Asia and what was happening in America at that point. I thought really we were only getting like the American, European, and like Italian stuff. You know? Well, yeah, this is 1969 when mm-hmm. like you are in the throes of the new Hollywood movement, probably about yeah five halfway through it essentially and so like the production cycles just can't move that fast like hollywood and traditional studio systems are struggling to like adapt to uh subversive kind of pushier stuff and so a lot of the things yeah you know european horror and exploitation films were coming in as well but you know asian films made their way over here as well uh tarantino actually writes about this a lot in his new book which i've been reading through but you know those Mm -hmm. are some like formative experiences for him we're going back and finding films uh you know not this one's not named specifically but in this vein uh in this ilk a film which i would say not many uh of its ilk are are around you know (laughs) kind of a unique setup well, you know, it's kind of, there is this in the last, I mean, there have always been fans of it, but like in the last, I feel like 10 to 15 years, there has been this big push to preserve pink films. And I think like a big part of that is just like, these things are better than most of the their contemporaries in terms of like. So it, it's funny to joke about like, hey, we kind of watched a porno, but like, it's a very good film. It's a softcore porn that's very good. Well, this yeah. is really softcore porn. No. But pink films are like, pink films were kind of vehicles for, you know, young directors back in the day. Like Kiyoshi Kurosawa, one of Japan's greatest living directors, got his start in pink films. And some of the more interesting, like boundary pushing, transgressive, like movies you can see especially in the v cinema era which was decades after horrors of malformed men were all pink films you know because like directors were given free reign so long as they put like kind of a nasty sex scene in it so it's like in the past 15 years it seems like companies like arrow and third window and um uh synapse yeah have like really worked to make sure that like a lot of that stuff that nikatsu was doing and 
some of the other pink companies like that stuff is preserved and released and like restored which is which is great i'm sure we've lost a lot of the pink (laughs) a lot of pink history at this point but there is definitely an audience for it and count me as one of them (laughs) you're you're outing yourself as a, a freak and a sicko on air my favorite movie i watched last year top three was a pink film for sure I, but What's I didn't tweet called? it. I, uh, I, maybe we'll talk about it later. You weren't like, recommend this one. Everybody go check it out. Hit the DL. I get the, the name of the movie is so reprehensible that it's it's <laughs> it's just it's hard to tweet it out from an account where I'm also mm. like, read Game Informer. Yeah. This one, you know, having not seen a lot of pink films, uh, this one's got about a hundred minute runtime. I think there's probably a lot more meat on the bone, but uh, Ishii's probably at a point in his career where he has that clout and the sort of responsibility afforded to him to be like, you know, make sort of a more down the line adaptation of some of these you yeah. know, iconic horror I don't short know stories. If, I, I guess I don't know if this is specifically like a pink film or if it just kind of has his stylings of what he was doing in the genre, but it feels dirtier than most yeah. <laughs> I mean, other it's, movies. It's, it's, if it, it's where he made his name. It's probably kind of why mm-hmm. he's getting the opportunity afforded to him to make this. Right. Uh, but I think like this sits firmly in the sort of exploitation era of of that style of film. And I think like every element every individual element in this movie works really well. I think most of the performances are incredible. The art direction as aforementioned like the style, costumes, all of the uses of color, uh, and especially the music. You've got some of the sickest opening credits I've ever seen uh, in this movie. It opens with a really cool splash title uh, of, like, you know, the collected works of Aguro Rampo. And then you have some cool close-up shots of spiders crawling on webs with all of the, like, cast. And this, like, kind of booming operatic organ score really just like setting the scene for something uh, kind of freaky to come and the freakiness does not uh jump off the bat but you sort of get there i also really like the opening line of this film which i cannot remember verbatim but it's like you know the day started in a very boring uh gray room yeah yeah and then i i would dispute that that room is boring because yeah, as soon uh, as i said it i said why doesn't my day start this way <laughs> uh in a movie where there's a lot going on you sort of hop right into it. Um, you're in what can only be described as an insane, an insane asylum with some shirtless ladies just running around, screaming, causing all sorts of rabble-rousing. And I think that's what we sit with for like four or five minutes, basically off the jump before we're ever even introduced to our main character. Tonally all over the place, too. Yeah. You can never tell if like our main character's in danger, if he's about to maybe like get a little something something if he's having fun if he's worried about the current like it's it's a very bizarre scene that is bouncing back and forth through a lot of different uh emotions yeah if you will so this is uh, a performance by taro yoshida playing a character called hirosuke hitomi uh, of many other names but his you know the the situation that we find him in the real troublesome situation is he's been uh you know, consigned to this asylum for reasons kind of unbeknownst to him and us. He's just like, you know what? I kind of got thrown in the slammer and uh, I don't think I deserved it, but I also can't remember what's going on with my life. The really only thing I have to cling on to is this memory of a very sort of nondescript lullaby and a big warehouse kind of in the middle and in the woods nowhere. Um, But I think I'm normal. I think I'm pretty, I think I'm all good here. Like, you know, these people are running around, people are screaming, everyone's running around with knives, but you know, my life's not too bad. 
there's no like record scratch but you're wondering how i ended up here the whole movie is kind of a record scratch you bet you wonder yeah. how I ended well, up here what are you talking about? i love i love the uh i love the omniscient narration which persists mm-hmm. throughout this entire thing you get little glimpses into his psyche and his understanding of what's going on and he's always just so matter of fact about the entire thing he's just kind of <laughs> like oh you know that's right yeah i i do remember nothing about the first 30 odd years of my life but that's pretty normal it seems like yeah the way it seems to convey this to the read to the reader to the viewer is um i is i was living my life normally and then just one second i couldn't remember like it's very glossed over why he has amnesia but it gets us to where we need to go so i'm not complaining too much um but he's having a blast in jail, as far as I'm concerned. He's having a blast until uh, someone tries to murk him. They they it pull happens. up on our boy with a big old knife. Uh, but he manages to escape. He kind of hops out a very small window after surviving this assassination attempt, dispatching with his murderer. And then he's mm-hmm. immediately on the streets uh, with more antics. He runs across a carnival and sort of has a flirtatious relationship with a young performer there until she is very quickly just murdered right in front of him right well well he's he hears the performer whistling this lullaby that he uh-huh. is one of his only memories he has left he tracks her down at night they talk she says yo i'm with the circus come find me i'll let you know about the lullaby because there's one other person here who knows about it so he goes there and then yeah unceremoniously before she can be like hey this is the guy you need to talk to a knife comes out of nowhere and murders her yeah However, since he is right beside her, he is framed for the crime, causing him to run away with only the knowledge of you need to find this like this uh, beachside on the Sea of Japan. Figure it out. Yeah. Me, being a, a dummy, not knowing my geography, I googled the Sea of Japan just to see how big, uh, how much area of bay he would need to look for. A miracle he found it. Gotta be honest. That's about... <laughs> it appears to be about 400 miles. He, 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 he forgot most of his life, but not his not his uh, geography. Just <laughs> fundamentals. Right. Look, here. here's one thing that I immediately found pretty funny in this movie. Uh, incredibly dramatic overreaction to this lullaby. It's like the one thing he's got in his memory, but he hears this woman walking down the street, sort of whistling a, f- a familiar tune. Maybe we all understand that, but then... She starts singing the lyrics of the song, which are subtitled as basically like, uh, please, sleepy baby, go to sleep. Uh, it's time for <laughs> sleep. And he's like, how do you know that song? Like, what the hell? Like, that song, is that's the one in my head. And, I'm, you know, it's, the movie's never like, yeah, maybe this is a misunderstanding, but very sort of, I'm just like. She could have just, I don't know, written it herself. Yeah, maybe. it's like hearing someone sing happy birthday. Yeah, and he's like. What's How do you know that? my yeah. family heirloom? <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, but he... So, I mean, it, it all serves to basically just set up that he's got some mysterious family history, let's say, that he's uh, mm. as unaware of as we are. Once he's framed for this murder, uh, he decides to just up and run, get out of there, and... Well, he, what else he gonna do? I he mean, just I, got the slammer. He's not going back to jail. Come on. No, I, Joke's I, too I would, funny. I would do the same thing. He He's on a train... He comes across a peculiar newspaper clipping, which just so happens that a man who looks exactly like him has mysteriously turned up dead. Um, and so he decides in the in the moment, just a spur of the moment thing, like, what if I took over this dead guy's life? Uh, and not just like, hey, you know, classic misunderstanding. What if I pretended uh, that there was a resurrection and I came back so, to life? Which 
he he dis he decides because he has also the same scar as the man on his foot, which is a swastika. Granted, diff- different meanings. Yeah. Blah 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 blah. We all know. Uh, and like that, the that, face that, mole sort of thing too. Yeah, he he goes to get a massage and. The the woman giving the massage is like, oh, you know, the, the the family of the recently deceased, they live on this island. They're kind of the big names around here. The Donald Trumps, if you will, of yes, the Sea of subtle, Japan town. Subtle commentary. <laughs> yeah, the Trump family here. Uh, however, the father is off on this mysterious island you can barely see in the Sea of Japan. Um, and, the uh, you know, conveniently, the woman is near blind. But she touches his face. She's like, oh, you look just like him. And he's like, well, check this out. I'm going to go lay in a grave for a second. Um, and then enters uh, two monks, and we get our Three Stooges SMF scene. <laughs> Larry, Curly, and Moe just walk onto the scene, basically. It's like... It's so funny. It's it's like... It start it you know, it's a, it's a very well-done comedic sequence where I realized... Or I start watching, and I'm like... Do they realize how funny this is? And then immediately it's like, yeah, they're 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 cranking that dial behind the scenes of just up the slapstickness. It's like the guy's oh, yeah. falling over. I think they kiss at one point. He like kisses the presumed dead body, the one monk, mm-hmm. when he's almost falling down the stairs. Very There's a uh, bit of a sot- sodomy joke there. Just as like well. very light, quick little sodomy joke, nineteen sixty nine, a different time. Yeah, I mean, nice here. Nice joke. Did what was the reason that he he so he convinces everyone that he has come back from the dead, and they give some like medical diagnosis that I think was something like brief asphyxiation. Yeah, they're like, "Oh, he really did just sort of die for a little bit, but he's all good now." It's like he had the it's common all cold. Chill. Yeah, just like a brief case of death. He was like, "Sorry, guys, got to clock out for a few days. I'm gonna be dead. I'll be right back. Like I promise, I'm gonna get through this. Make and me I make guess, me a nice chicken noodle soup, and I'm good." I guess no one ever second guesses it which you know different era you we didn't know much about science well they're then. they're like they're going to put him in the grave i think they lay him down in the grave and then he's like hold on i'm good no 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 yeah no 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 okay he <laughs> he lays down the next day in the cemetery and the monks come across him i guess his idea was like in in a in, in a stupor coming out of the grave still mm, weak he might have yeah. passed out in the cemetery but that's how he explains that he's not in his coffin yeah and this entire time we're getting that good narration i mentioned earlier where he's like okay cool i'm just gonna kind of like finesse this gonna sneak in there they're all gonna think i'm this guy it's gonna be great my life a movie for real um and then we move into my favorite section which is sort of the trials and tribulations of his uh adjusting to this this sleuthy double life that he's got going on um so you know he he now has a wife and a family and all of these responsibilities and you get those sort of things where it's like you can see the kind of sweat beads coming down his forehead where he's like oh man (laughs) my wife wants me to you know smooch her pay attention to her the old ball and chains bothering me well that's that's one of the smart details about this movie is the guy has to learn like at one point, he realizes the guy he's impersonating is left-handed, and he's right-handed, and he's like, well, I can't write with my left hand. So, like, there's a scene where he needs to sign a document, and he fake like, he, he spills something on it. My like, my favorite scene in the movie, the best thing I think happens in here, that, like, guys from the nearby yeah. fishing village come over, and they're like, oh, here's this... Uh, document, you know, agreement, whatever we need you to sign. And yeah, you get the, like, intense close-up on his face. He's like, 
oh, I can't sign this shit. Like, I can't write with my left hand. They're going to know I'm faking it. And so he's, like, holding the pen there. They come to bring tea into the room. And it's, like, um, it's the it's like it's giving the uh, the death note scene where he's, like, I'll take a potato chip and eat it. He's just, like, oh, if I, if I fuck up this document by pouring tea all over it, then I can't. Then, then I won't have. Then I get out of making this business deal. So he very comically just flips the tray of tea all over the thing. And then he says, like, oh, you know what? You got to go write this whole document by hand again. Sorry, that's a lot of work for you. My bad. Yeah, I guess they hadn't heard of the fucking printing press yeah. by then. It hadn't made its way across the Pacific Ocean. They're like, we need your uh, John Hancock, buddy. We do. Yeah, th- there's a lot of fun moments like that. Um, like, um, he, he gets a newspaper at one point, and his wife's like, oh, don't you need it, your glasses? Or are, are your eyes better? And he looks at the paper. He's like, ha, ah, I guess they're not. Which <laughs> yeah. is funny. I do like the detail that, like... He won't have sex. With yeah, he he does wife. have like some moral backbone where he's just like, oh my god. Uh, However, my wife really wants to make love to me. He's like, can't do that. However, uh, the man he's impersonating, I guess, was having an affair with one of the servants in yeah. the house, and I do believe he has sex with her. So I guess he wasn't as worried about that one. Well, you know, it was a step up, a moral. He he says he has to do it to uh, be convincing. This this film uh, has a weird relationship with fidelity and the responsibilities of a spouse let's say that definitely comes into play towards the end there uh in something that maybe hasn't aged the best uh i think no i think it's fine <laughs> it's like yeah i, I have no all good with it. uh you know women be trifling is basically at the end of the day the moral of this film <laughs> and like it's okay it's if your wife cheats on you it's okay to uh establish an island nation where you're creating your own sort of uh army basically i don't know well, may, maybe cut this one out isn't that what andrew tate just got did got kind of it's for? also like close to the plot of metal gear solid 5 in some ways <laughs> wow. um horse of malformed men is one part metal gear solid 5 one part andrew tate well here's, them all together here's, 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 what, here's what i was thinking at the end um maybe maybe the maybe man was the true horror all along that's one of the moral takeaways that i got as well oh shit that's right i said it um wow. another Patreon. thing com slash region free that's that's not real um For more heat like that let's talk about another one of my favorite sequences which is the uh how do i want to phrase this attempted hot tub assassination by rattlesnake and then let's talk about the successful assassination <laughs> of the snake <laughs> i mean it's a very he good killed- it's, it's a very good scene where you're sort of like, okay, I know what we're doing here. Woman's going to take a nice steamy bath in a barrel. We've all been there before. She's getting in there. Uh, there's some titillating nudity. Pink film's got to hit the quota, yada, yada, yada. She's in there. She takes one look down at the floor. Big ass snake. Like classic sort of snap zoom. Like, what's that? <laughs> Boop. Big snake. Snake hisses directly into frame. Smash cut back to woman just screaming her lungs out. Um, and then the whole... The whole staff of the house runs in, uh, and they... I don't remember what they use. I think it's just, like, a towel or something. But it's a very dramatic effect where they whack the snake, and, like, his whole head is flat. Like, a piece of cardboard. Like, they kill the... Like, really kill the shit out of this snake. If you're not... If you're not okay seeing stuff like that, maybe skip this five-second portion of the movie, because, like... I forgot. And when it happens, you're like, oh, oh. Because for a while, it's kind of, it looks like they're clearly not actually going to hurt the snake. It's like, ah, okay, whatever. 
and then you the snake they whack him yeah yeah it didn't it's it it they had to fly the snake flag at half mast for a week <laughs> after that that was a tragedy in the they snake like, the, world the snake budget got too out of hand we got to cut costs yeah. wherever we can so then well, they I mean, call shouldn't have messed with my boy like that, i know, you know? <laughs> someone shoot that fucking snake they, they call a very casual meeting where they're like okay guys we know somebody brought this fucking snake in here whoever it was just fess up to it like you're not going to be in, in in trouble we just sort of need to get to the bottom of this um but that that sort of leads to the unearthing of this conspiracy that like yeah hey wait someone is trying to cause you harm in this house somebody here is is up to no good um, so we sort of then we're we're like on uh, we're on alert, watching out for any shifty characters or there are these mysterious letters that start showing up that really uh, kind of unnerve the wife. Um, and then one night, mysteriously, uh, she wakes up in the middle of the night in distress and then tragically expires. And that is sort of the inciting event that moves us into the bonkers second half of this movie. I think it is pretty much like well. I guess it's like an hour and 40 minute movie. So maybe is it like the first 40 minutes so far? It's and then about like half the, and ba- half. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty close to half and half, but um, he decides to hop on a boat, go see daddy fly out to the, uh, well not fly. You don't fly on a boat, boat <laughs> on out to the, uh, to the Island, um, which is sort of where the really cool cover art of the, I guess it's the reverse half, but this mm-hmm. very evocative image of a man, sort of with like white ash all over his skin in a big billowy robe doing just some of the coolest choreography by hand and like upper body stuff uh, that I've ever seen. And there's certainly a reason for that um, as we are introduced to uh, Tatsumi Hijikata playing uh, our, our sort of main antagonist here, Mr. Malformed Men himself. Yeah, uh, did you did you read any about this dude? I did, I definitely did, and I want to talk about this because it's one of the coolest things that the movie does for sure. Yeah, he's he's like this this actor whose name you just said, but it escapes me, uh, is the creator of the Buto dance art movement. He's like a very important and famous performance artist uh, out of like 60s, 70s, 80s Japan. Yeah, it was uh, like a it's it's sort of an avant garde art troupe that was like directly inspired by. You know, the things that transpired in World War II and post-war Japan. But they kind of did these, like, you know, very elaborate and evocative performances. Um, And most of the featured players in the background uh, of these scenes who play, you know, the malformed men and the the creations uh, on this island are members of that troupe. And so it definitely, like, establishes immediately the credibility of some of their otherworldly movements and really yeah. just kind of like creepy they're sort of it's it is very hard to explain if you haven't seen it but they're sort of just doing these like rhythmic gesticulations a lot of like the wave almost snake-like in a way um but the characters are also all done up with pretty neat costumes <laughs> like people have webs over their heads or sort of look like they're combined with goats on top of all of these other deformities well, that like were given to them when we first arrive on the beach, we see the father, who's, you know, this this guy who, the creator of Buto, everything. Um, Jogoro doing... Komada is the character's name, so we can call him Thank Jogoro. Um, and we actually see the scene a little earlier in the movie. But there are flashes of it, yeah, because there, yeah. there is some, like, pretty creative editing in a few moments in this where you just get, mm. like, little snippets of his 
what do you want to call it? Beckoning beach dance, basically. But you get the scene in full when you arrive. And it's, you know, yeah. probably the thing you remember from this movie outside of it is, maybe the ending. Waves crashing. <laughs> man it, in as big Im- robe. As impressive as it is, like, Buto dancing is horrifying. It is a disturbing art form, kind of by design. Um, so this scene is very memorable for being visually impactful. Also, just like unsettling watching the way this man dances around but for a really quick little piece of trivia that just by sheer coincidence i learned the day before my rewatch of this uh buto performance inspired um takeshi shimizu when he was uh coming up with the ghosts in the Juon films. Oh, they are directly totally inspired by Buto performances, uh, partly because they're creepy. Also because it was kind of a way to get around the lack of a budget there. Just paint the ghosts white and have them move kind of creepy around the room. Um, just by complete coincidence, I was watching some stuff about the making of Juon and Shimizu talked about Buto. And then the next day I was reading about this movie and it was like, Oh, that's literally the founder of that thing. I just learned about <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what I what I admired most about this movie, probably more so than the story or whatever it is that's happening, is kind of the creative uh, gumbo that it represents, where you have, they're adapting all of these kind of iconic Rampo stories, or at least the, the skeleton of one with a lot of elements paying homage to him. Uh, there's an incredible interview with Masahiro Kakefuda, who was like the main writer uh, with Ishii on the Blu-ray, where he talks about kind of his process and how they were inspired to do this adaptation. And the dude just has an incredibly cool attitude, but he was like, we basically read through these stories. We were like, let's take the coolest shit that we can and just like throw it all in there. Um, yeah. It's, it's a really neat interview. I highly recommend you watch it. But, um, and then, you know, that combined with the score, the pyrotechnics, the visual effects, and then this, you know, tribe essentially of, of Buto dancers, which as you were mentioning is like meant to be this sort of, unnerving art form it all just really coalesces together and yeah a a very kind of you haven't seen many movies like this one for sure yeah i i think like without i don't want to overstate it too much but also like when they get to the island there's about a five minute sequence of them just touring the island and you start to kind of realize the people here behaving and look somewhat as a cross between man and animal you know like at one point we get this moment of women swimming through water and they're being fed like oh yeah um it's it's such a visually arresting kind of sequence of images they're throwing at you that you kind of probably have never seen anything like like even though this movie's 50 years old i Mm -hmm. think like it is such a fascinating sequence of like uh, uh pure creativity but also just like in an alarming way where they're like they're clearly trying to disturb or shock you with what yeah. they're showing you but in a way where it's like this is technically also fucking impressive yeah i i've obviously not read the original short story and don't know the exact timeline but like the island of dr moreau is sort of a clear inspiration or contemporary uh to point to as well as something like the dangerous game which is sort of just like hey uh, you're going to be lured into this kind of fantastical island where things are revealed to be maybe not as uh on the up up and up as we as we thought they were um right but that's all brought to life again with great costumes really just like this movie uh 
as as difficult as it was perhaps to sort of think about or parse through some of that stuff at times was never uh not compelling to look at and it uh only gets more disturbing from here luckily for us yeah i i sort of forget the pace in which it's revealed just how uh bad things are here but you know you it's it's right there as soon as you get there uh clearly not great there's a lot of mysterious figures walking around people who definitely have had some experiments done to them i think you slowly sort of start to get that Jogoro is responsible maybe for some of this experimentation and then there's a very funny sequence where kind of he does his bad guy reveal and pulls out what can only be described as the world's smallest gun and he's like listen up I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you how things are it's like a very it looks kind of like a little water pistol yeah before we get to that point um we we learn our main character's role in all this you know he's obviously the estranged son of the man running this island, the man Do, that is he the, assumed. Is the son the... revealed that early? Because I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's before the sequence in the cave okay. where we learn the entire backstory. Well, that's but like we... thirty minutes of the end of the movie, basically. Right. <laughs> we 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 learn that our, our main character here um, is the estranged son of this man who's running this island of malformed men, and the the man he's assumed the identity of is actually his brother as a child. His father shipped him off to Tokyo in the mm-hmm. hopes that he would become a surgeon and would join him back on this island and perform his surgeries for him. In the what his, his goal basically is he is bringing people, uh, women, children, whatever the case might be, and he's deforming them. He's kind of finding this middle ground between man and animal and creating this island where people live effectively in these primal states. They're kind of brought back to, you know, what we might have been. To, when man first started evolving it's real that like seems... uh ego trip stuff he's he's playing yeah. god to a t exactly so he needs a surgeon here to kind of create these beasts for him and yeah. obviously his son is like nah i'm good and then he's like well i'm gonna kill you and he's like okay i'll help you but can i help this woman out that's uh not a siamese twin but you've sewed to someone yeah and he's like yeah that's fine okay but, like, also, I might still kill you. And it's like, okay, not the strongest writing in the movie going on right here, but that's fine. And then he performs surgery. Yeah, the the mix of exposition dumps and character motivations, let's call it, that starts happening towards this back half is really just, like, you feel the, uh, the writerly hand being like, okay, and then we want this to happen. And then there's going to be this cool sequence, yeah, where he's, like, using his surgical skills and sort of realizing maybe what that part of his backstory might be a lot still being sort of hinted at or kept mm-hmm. mysterious. Like you're getting more of that narration where he's just kind of like, Oh, I am good at this. You know, maybe this is who, is who I was in a past life. Uh, essentially. Is this before or after the kind of fireworks dance sequence? I'm trying to remember, like, is that part of what we see up top or is that as they move through the facility more? Cause you know, he does sort of, um, he like gets used to being on the island and is kind of playing around with the idea of like, well, let's hear him out. Let's see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the coolest images in the mo- in the movie or sort of montages rather is this like well edited dance sequence where these women are like painted silver, kind of look like birds, um, and mm-hmm. they have fireworks attached to their body. And there's like just very cool, yeah, cross cutting montage of like 
these elaborate flame schemes and they're dancing with these big orange sheets um doesn't serve an explicit plot purpose it's kind of just like okay we're gonna check this out for a little bit uh but it's very cool it looks awesome (laughs) it's that's a lot of the the. It's a lot of ten minutes of people telling you the story they didn't tell you for the first half of the yeah. movie, truncated by some really awesome dance moments, or just like, hey, like what's this over here? Take a look over there. Isn't that isn't that cool? And I'm like, it is cool. What's going on? Yeah, it also seems like a lot of the makeup design is done either with putty or cake. Did you notice this? At one point, someone's face is supposed to look malformed, and it literally just looks like they've put cake all over them. Yeah, some there's a few like there are there are some characters that are basically meant to just be like um, carnival attractions, sort of where it's mm-hmm. like this one's going to sit in a cage or like be out here doing this thing, and they don't get a ton to do. And then there are a few guys that are basically like lackeys. Um, yeah, and they kind of just have like you know yeah. Definitely looks like they just rubbed some mud or cake or ash on their face. Like, there's the one guy I'm remembering who I don't know his character name, but he kind of just does have. He look kind of looks like he took a big piece of chocolate cake, smashed it on his forehead, and then does like bug eyes basically and <laughs> yeah. uses his teeth to talk a lot. But he's he's one of our uh, primary troublemakers for sure. So, at a point that is never really built up to, the movie just decides, I think it's time to end this piece. It's like you're probably the- wondering what's going on, and I'm like. <laughs> where'd you get that the father says so you want to go see your mom now yeah. and the guy's like he's like yeah i guess we're a, we're about at our runtime on this movie we should go figure out what this movie was about and then holy shit it goes off the rails aj i'm buckling up buddy tell him about it maybe the most you know dramatic thing that's ever happened in a cave he's like here's your mom she's tied up to the wall that's all cool uh she's emaciated she's been down here for a very long time i think it's like i think they do spell it out he's like i shipped you and your brother out when you were three years old she's been down here for like 30 years basically i did unfortunately catch her well hold on actually he's like hey my life was great i was engaged to a beautiful woman uh Everything was going great for me. These children were coming, bringing me gifts, being like, nice wife, brother. Amazing. Everyone was, yeah. everyone was stoked for him because he was ugly as sin. He was bagged a hottie. Yeah, he, I mean, his, it, it is sort of key to the theme of the movie, basically, is he, he was like, he did have a deformity himself. I think his hands are sort of malformed, uh, as, as the title spells out there. And so he's, you know, from this line of nobility. I think he says at one point she was like the most beautiful woman in uh, Japan, China, and India combined. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they end up engaged to each other. But uh, as soon as they get married, he's like, she didn't want to be seen in public with me. I wasn't allowed to hang out. I, we weren't allowed to be seen together. I wasn't yeah. I wasn't getting any. Um, and then he's like, she would wake up in the middle of the night and I wouldn't know where she goes. That was weird. So one night I follow her. Turns out she was porking her cousin. That was a bummer. <laughs> um, so I had to kidnap them and tie them up in a cave on my island nation where I was doing uh, surgery to create the perfect society. As yeah. one does. I think that's always happening. Game journalists, if any of y'all are listening, believe it or not, incest is a plot point. Did not begin with 12 minutes. It's been a plot point for hundreds of years. And here it is in Horrors of Malformed Men, which goes uh, full incest for the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's like... Everyone is having sex with their family. Some of them... crazy. Some of them unwittingly, to be fair, the dad does pull the like, oh, the uh, sort of mistress that you had 
uh that was also your cousin or no that's his sister right like yeah sort of distantly um but i do love where he's like yeah it sucked that my wife was cheating on me so i tied them up together there's his skeleton over there and then you get kind of a flashback within a flashback which is another one of the most visually compelling moments in this movie where he's like he did you know get infected with crabs and then she ate not like you know not the STI, um, like actual seaside crabs started living in his body um, and she did eat them. Uh, and now all of his bones have been plucked clean. Which means she was down there committing cannibalism by yeah. way of seafood on her cousin lover. Look, it's an incredibly dark moment. There's no way you can be like, it's dark on so many yeah. levels, and it never stops adding new layers of just bleakness to it. Being chained to your dying cousin lover and being forced to eat... Well, that's a bad thing in and of itself. Then being forced to eat him to sustain yourself, also not well, great. not even that. She's eating the crabs that are eating him. Yeah. Then eating him by association. There's it's like, like just little flakes. Yeah. Well... Yeah. I would say that having the crabs there as a nice little snack is sort of a cherry on top of a bad situation. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And so I'm like, look, <laughs> at least, you know, crabs don't taste horrible. Um, so they were alive. That's she a bummer. Was eating the, but she was like eating them raw, alive, She was like picking up the moving all. crabs and stuffing them in her mouth. Look, like we said, not a great situation. Uh, I would not like to wake myself up uh, tomorrow in, in, in a cave like this. Right. Then... <laughs> Kind of out of nowhere, our uh, intrepid detective shows up and he's like, look, this movie's sort of confusing. There's <laughs> There was a murder mystery. We kind of forgot about that to get back to this, like, fucked up Professor X situation with your dad and your cousin lover and your sister and all this sort of stuff. He's like, let me just, he's like, I'm good. I got this. Um, the sort of assistant. Uh, housekeeper that they've brought along with them. He's like, buddy, your shit is fucked up. I know it was you. you you're not as slick as you think. Uh, we then, I think for the third time in maybe 10 minutes, get another like full narrated flashback sequence, which this is what I do like. like it's, a, it's a bit ridiculous in kind of its premise and presentation, but I do like how every time they flashback to a sort of different story that someone's telling, the entire thing um, is in like a, a different colored vignette. So like the entire mm -hmm. screen is sort of shot through this green filter or this part's red, I think. There was like a sepia-toned one. Um, but here we get basically he lays out like the, the plot of the movie as we've watched or the events of it happening in the house, rather, kind of what was actually going on. And so, basically, yeah, some of the housekeepers were scheming to kind of assume the fortune once this last heir uh, passed away. And probably, like, I don't know if it's a good idea, but one of the funniest murder plots I've ever seen, they uh, get in the rafters above his bed where he's sleeping at night. This is, of course, you'll remember when his wife mysteriously makes up, wakes up in the middle of the night screaming and then immediately dies. Um, this guy gently sort of drops a little string down from up top on the rafters. Um, and then he's like, okay, this is going to go great. I'm just going to take this little bottle of poison I've got here, pour it right down this string into his mouth, and it's going to be the cleanest murder anyone's ever seen um homeboy rolls over snores in his sleep and his wife catches a stray and that's how she died so 
this dude's got to get it. He's no good. Detective's like, I, I figured I, all this out. This is either like a thing people used to do or or a direct homage to you only live twice, I believe. Um, Because they do that in that movie as well by lowering the string. I really? wonder if it's a... It, like a common murder plot? Yeah, I wonder. Because it is like weirdly specific that you would like drip poison down a string into someone's mouth. It has showed up in a movie that came out before this. I don't know if it was like a common tactic what did you uh what'd you type into google to find that string dropping poison dropping dropping poison on string (laughs) hey blake i think somebody's knocking at your door is that that the fbi pizza hut yeah (laughs) not the worst idea i guess it doesn't quite work kind of doesn't go the way you just gotta hope like you just gotta hope they don't roll over yeah like at the moment you do it but it's kind of clever so at this point in the movie, we've gone through, I mean, gosh, how long is it? Probably 20, 20 solid minutes of like backstory, lore, explanation via right. flashback. Um, and so there are a lot of balls up in the air that we're juggling. But basically, it's like all of our key players and their motivations have essentially been spelled out. Um, mm-hmm. His dad wants him to sort of be the house surgeon on this island to create um, a the way he describes it was like very it was a very compelling scene in the movie kind of is just sort of like look I want to make these malformed men to like yeah <laughs> speak something about the greater human condition kind of explore what our next evolution might be like and I want to be in charge of it so again He's ego tripping. What sort of what sort of happens at the end of this move? Like, how does it all go sour? Yeah, I mean, so they they chase the father out of the cave. They we learn that the father has rigged the entire island with explosives. He says he's going to if if our detective Goro Akechi comes any closer, he's going to turn this island into a sea of fire. And then, when you know it, his ex wife uh, that's also his love. And then, for some reason, they're both dying now. Well, I understand why she's dying, but he also appears to be dying, which I guess is just narratively convenient. Um, what's more fascinating to me than that moment is our our main character and his new cousin lover, mm-hmm. uh, where they basically they quickly write a note to to a catchy. They say, "Here you go, bud." He reads it and he says, "Hey." Uh, we just learned we were committing incest. That's pretty crazy, but like we're kind of chill with it. Um, so we're gonna go strap ourselves to some fireworks and launch ourselves into the air, and as then, one um, would do. I I do believe the greatest moment in motion picture history we'll, occurs. We'll get there. One thing okay. I want to rewind to a little bit because this was this one stuck out. Um, as uh the bad guy and his lover are sort of embracing each other in their dying throes on the beach. She's like, look, sorry, I cheated on you. I totally understand why you would want to uh, become, you know, God of a, of an Island of, of malformed men. That's a kind of common thing that guys do when they're going through a tough time, like obvious coping mechanism. This is my fault. Yeah. Like I believe it's the plot of at least two far cry games, classic, classic woman. L I'm going to hold this one. (laughs) Let's die together. Uh, And then yes, it's sort of, 
It's very artfully done in the way that it's expressed. Uh, the entire island and everyone on it explodes into a mass of limbs and fireworks. And no, I think I think it's just the two. Is it? There was like more. I think so. Because I it, think it's just the two, and they keep yelling, "Mom." Yeah. And then the movie ends. I think it's just those two. I think they're the only ones who explode by the end of this film. Any sort of, any like plot construction immediately kind of disappears. You just start getting these big flashes and then it's like, here's an arm. I think there's two like hands holding one another. Yeah. Like a leg. You see some heads. So bodies being blown apart. It probably makes, you know, more sense that, yeah, it's just those two. But they get on their screaming mother. The score, beautiful score kicks in again, just like. Humming, mm-hmm. thrumming, very great. And then you get a really cool the end splash screen, and you're like, normal movie. Really understood everything that happened there. Yeah. <laughs> everything made sense. Uh, it Wrapped was a great time. Yep. What'd you think overall, AJ? I'm, an incredible experience to watch it. I think uh, you might be picking up that I had a hard time following the plot at times. And sure. definitely was not helped by people showing up out of nowhere and being like, Give me 15. Let me clear this up. Uh, but, like, again, I was so impressed by it visually and aesthetically, just knowing when it came out and kind of seeing how that style has, like, I want to say evolved over time, but also, like, not a lot of stuff looks this good anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I um, Man, I, I love this movie. I watched it for the first time about a year ago, I'd say. Um and Ishii, Taro Ishii is like a director I had, um, I wanted to get into really badly. And then I watched this movie and was like, wow, he's fantastic. Um, and then have not gotten around to any of his other films, unfortunately. But going back to it, I was like, it, it obviously had lost a little bit of impact. I think the first time you watch this movie and you're de- wrestling with this mystery, you were like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. It lost a bit of its impact on the second time, which is a bit of a letdown but that back half just is so visually compelling that it it, it picked me back up in the last 40 yeah minutes of it's this movie. it's not like i was ever looking at my watch at this movie being like slog oh not having a good time like i had a great yeah. time with this movie um and everything that happens in it as as little or as much as i understood <laughs> I double featured this last night with uh the first episode of the last of us and let me tell you this one they're about the same in length and uh horse malformin flew by compared to that fucking snore got fest. a Jesus lot of Christ. great makeup in it as well so uh, people can watch it if, they, if they're listening to this they haven't seen it it's on the arrow the player. arrow player and I, the blu-ray is really great like yeah, I, I don't know how good it looks on streaming but the transfer mm. is like i was like really just impressed with how good this movie looked yeah arrows arrows uh release is also on things like uh amazon and apple so it's very accessible okay. yeah like an incredible they, restoration before we close out you got any movie recommendations based on this one i think uh, i got a couple one one that it evoked for me um is a a little film called uh hanzo the razor which okay. is sort of of a similar era of exploitation that one is a bit more explicitly uh, a sex comedy maybe we'll talk about it on this pod one day it would be a good uh candidate but essentially the the layup for that one is sort of yeah murder mystery guy's kind of a cop who's trying to get to the bottom of something going on in this mysterious village um and his 
claim to fame is his interrogation tactic uh, where he uses uh, his very large penis to give women <laughs> sex so good that they tell him everything they know about crimes. I, you know, I, I think, believe it or not, I think that's also a big plot point in the real life of Jake Adelstein <laughs> in Tokyo Vice. <laughs> i sure there's a part of that book where he's like, yeah, Look, I'm just so good. Swords. Yeah. Um, I got a couple. I got a couple. Uh, one is, you know what? Not a hard to find movie. A popular one. Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. I mean, with the animal stuff and the island stuff especially i was yeah kind of a similar tone like it'd make a good queasy double feature basically yeah ni- what was it 1980 italian cannibal film you pr- if you're listening to this podcast you probably know yeah. it and maybe have seen it if you um, if you saw what happened to the snake in this movie and you were like look i don't think they were mean enough to that animal and i would like them to do more to a nicer looking animal you'll love cannibal holocaust um my second one is a is a a definite pink film uh that i love god when is it from it's not the same era at all um let me look it up this is from 1996 splatter naked blood by Mm -hmm. isayasu sato um narratively stylistically completely different films but if you just want to kind of know more about maybe where the world that this movie came from, uh, Splattered Naked Blood, is a fantastic, fantastic pink film uh, that is very sexy and very gory. It is about a kid whose father was a was a um, a doctor who was looking into how maybe he can create a drug that stops pain, but but he, he dies, and so his son picks it up and he creates this drug and he wants to test it. So he tests it on these three unwitting women, but you know, the drug is, is not ready. The clinical trial goes wrong. And, uh, the women, they, uh, they, they, they form these weird reactions to it where, you know, one, one they, they, they seem to love pain rather than, you know, not hmm. feeling it. And I'll say it manifests in a bunch of different ways. It is uh, very, very gory. In fact, one scene, it is, um, the movie is notorious for one scene, which a lot of people cannot stomach what happens. It's a bit of auto-cannibalism. Uh-oh. Um, but it's like an hour long because most of those pink films yeah. were mandated. They had to be an hour long. And it's on YouTube. Okay. You can watch it on YouTube. Surprised to totally, hear that. I totally recommend it. It has a Sadao Sadao. Oh, God. I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> that. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something that I added to my own watch list here. Is I okay. was, again, so just captivated by the interview with masahiro kakafuda that i added like mm-hmm. i was just pulling up any movies that he'd written and i want to watch those um so he's responsible for uh sister street fighter and sex and fury mm-hmm. which are you know definitely similar but the one that caught my eye the most is uh school of the holy beast also known as the transgressor uh has an incredible poster kind of one of those you know none violent sex comedies i i don't mean none n-o-n-e i mean none and you win. Right. Um, right. Right. So, right, right, right. like, very cool poster. I'm definitely going to track that one down. We should watch Splatter Naked Blood for this show. <laughs> Look, you sold me. <laughs> Here's the thing. Hisiyasu Sato is, like, one of the directors specifically that was working in pink films just because people would give him money to make movies. And so he would make these insanely interesting movies. But, like, they would just have one sex scene kind of tacked on. <laughs> And Let, then the rest of it would just be like his weirdo thing he was making. It's so cool. We should kind, do a pink series. Kind of like Wild Things, right? I mean, 
Yeah, kind of. Maybe. maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, next week, we will be talking about uh, a film not too old, uh, World of Conoco, which is one oh Blake's God. been hyping up to me as well. Oh, my God. Y'all, you're not ready for World of Conoco. I feel like uh, under-talked about movie. AJ, this is going to melt your mind. Yeah, and I believe this is one that's streaming on Hulu at least at the time of recording. So, you know, if you want to watch along and do your homework, uh, that's what we'll be talking about next week. But until then, thanks for listening. Uh, We didn't, you know, we didn't do any plugs at the end of the last episode. I don't know. Follow me on Letterboxd and Twitter. I'm at Radmir. Blake, do you want people to find you on the internet? Yeah, follow me on Twitter, at Radmir. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) Good night, and thanks for listening. Stay malformed, men.